We like to think that if we live our lives in ways that are admirable, that nothing too bad will ever happen to us. Even though we know that evil, that pain, and that suffering are indiscriminate, we also wonder why bad things happen to good people or why bad people seem to prosper. We know that something bad could happen to any one of us at any second, yet we're still shocked when the reasonable person doesn't get hired, when the considerate person falls ill, and when the faithful person is mistreated. So, too, many were shocked when the person at the center of our case this week went missing. She was responsible. She was tidy. She was caring. She was outgoing. She was a good friend. And she was a loving mother. But none of those things stopped someone nefarious from entering her life and taking her away at the end of her work shift in Spring Township, Pennsylvania, on February 27, 1991. This is the case of Brenda Condon. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Brenda Louise Condon was born on March 1, 1962, and was the youngest of five children. When Brenda was only three years old, she lost her mother which left her older sister, Iris, 12 years her elder, to step into the motherly role. And Iris happily did so. While their father was still the disciplinarian for the children, Iris remembers taking Brenda with her nearly everywhere she went. It was when Brenda turned 16 that the roles shifted for her. You see, when Brenda was 16, she found out that she was pregnant, and she would soon be a mom herself. She went from being the baby of the family to being the mom. Even though Brenda didn't have memories of the person her mother was, she had the role her sister had played in her life to guide her. She was excited for this new adventure, and perhaps because she had lost her own mother, vowed to always be there for her child, no matter what. Her boyfriend at the time, Tom, who was around 10 years older than Brenda, asked Brenda to marry him when he learned that she was pregnant, and they soon began their own small family with the birth of their son, Todd. Two years later, Tom and the then 18-year-old Brenda had their second child, a baby girl they named Shauna, and things were good for several years after. However, by the time Brenda was in her early 20s, 
She had been married for close to six years already, had two children, and was beginning to grow apart from her husband. Even their divorce, though, showed Brenda's maturity, despite her young age of 22. She and Tom had a conversation about what was best for their kids, and had mutually decided that the children should remain living with her ex-husband. That way, the divorce wouldn't disrupt their lives any more than it had to. Tom lived in a more rural location where they already had friends, and Brenda had moved into an apartment complex. Brenda and Tom were amicable. There was no ill will. There wasn't fighting or screaming in front of the kids. There wasn't even a custody agreement. Brenda was welcome to come pick the kids up and spend time with them whenever she or they wanted. By 1989, after the divorce, Brenda established a successful cleaning business with one branch in Williamsport and one branch in State College, Pennsylvania. Brenda seemed to be thriving. Business was good. She was able to have fun with her friends in a way that she hadn't been able to do in her teens. And there was a new man she had been seeing named Greg Palazzari. Brenda and her friends had met Greg as he was in a band that played at several bars that they frequented. But Greg wasn't just a musician. He also owned a Sunoco gas station called, as one might obviously guess, Greg's Sunoco. So, since he was rooted due to his business, Brenda decided to move in with him at a home located at 1959 Harvest Circle in State College, Pennsylvania, after they had become an official couple. The good news was that in this new location, it put her closer to her children than she had previously been. Brenda had also begun to make friends with Greg's friends in State College as the two grew serious. By 1991, when our case takes place, the pair had been dating for about two years. It was one of those friends, a very close friend, as Brenda's sister Iris said on the Unfound podcast, named Carl, who owned a local bar called Carl's Bad Tavern. Those are separate words. Carl's Bad Tavern in a rural area of Spring Township, Pennsylvania, on State Route 550, two miles north of Belfont, Pennsylvania, and Carl was looking for some extra help at the bar. When he approached Brenda to gauge her interest in bartending, she was all in. Even though Brenda hadn't ever bartended before, she had a magnetic personality and was an extremely quick learner. In fact, even though she had only worked quite literally one or two shifts, Carl already trusted her enough to ask her to take on a shift by herself and to work a double. Brenda began a shift on the evening of February 26, 1991, would close the bar down by herself, get the deposit ready for the bank, clean up, and then go home for a few hours of rest before returning to begin the morning shift on the 27th, again, alone, from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. It had seemed like a decent second job that, along with her home cleaning business, had the potential to make her some good money. Brenda pulled into work in her 1986 gray Mercury Capri, dressed in jeans, a silver shirt covering a black tank top, and wearing black cowboy boots, ready to start the first shift. According to most accounts, that shift was pretty uneventful. Like always, most of the customers were regulars, with 
a few new faces at the bar. Brenda poured drinks and made small talk. She was kind and likable, so it came easy to her. Even though a double shift would mean she'd likely feel exhausted the next afternoon, she didn't mind. It would just get her one day closer to her birthday, which was only a couple of days away on March 1st, and also closer to some birthday celebrations with both her boyfriend and with her family. When Brenda's replacement shift came in on February 27th at 6 p.m., they saw her car parked in the lot. However, when they entered the bar, they didn't see Brenda anywhere. The door had been unlocked, but the lights were off. The receipts from the evening shift were neatly organized. Obviously, Brenda had worked up the deposit, but where was she? It was clear that some patrons had come in because there were empty glasses on the bar with the money for the drinks laid either beside or under the empty glasses, but that meant that Brenda hadn't collected the money from them. Why not? After searching the bar and finding Brenda nowhere, someone had called Greg to see if he had heard from her. It was at this point that Greg told them he hadn't seen her either, that she hadn't come home after her shift the evening before. I couldn't find it in any of my research who had initially called the police to alert them that Brenda was nowhere to be found. I don't know if coworkers called, if Carl, the owner of the tavern, did, if Brenda's boyfriend Greg did after he had been alerted, or what. I do wonder how alarms weren't raised for Greg when Brenda didn't return home between shifts to sleep, and why it took until the following evening when the next shift came in to realize she was missing. However, perhaps he believed she could have gone to her sister's or to a friend's house, or maybe he wasn't home himself to know that she didn't return. Regardless of who made that first call, there was an obvious bias and belief that she was young and would show back up. In fact, a sincere effort and investigation into finding Brenda didn't happen until March 2nd, the day after her 29th birthday, when she didn't show up to pick up her children, aged 10 and 12 in 1991. Brenda's sister Iris didn't know her sister was missing until several days after the co-workers discovered her missing and had alerted Greg. Iris said that Greg hadn't called her, but that could be, because even though Iris knew Brenda had a boyfriend, Brenda had never brought Greg around, nor introduced the two of them. So, Iris learned about her sister from a call placed to her by the Spring Township Police Department on that Friday. They asked if she were Brenda Condon's sister and when the last time was that she had heard from her sister. Iris let them know that she was, and it had been a few days, but that Brenda would be there the next day for a birthday celebration. No, they told her she likely wouldn't, because she hadn't been seen nor heard from for several days. Her boyfriend Greg had just come in on that same day, Friday, to say that Brenda was missing. Then they asked if Iris could come in to file the missing persons report. Since she was the oldest blood relative, her children were obviously too young to do so. When Iris learned that Brenda hadn't been seen and hadn't shown up to pick up the kids, 
She knew that whatever had happened to Brenda had been the result of foul play. She had not left on her own. Remember, Brenda knew what it was like to grow up without a mother. Brenda's sister Iris stated to reporter Mike Joseph, quote, she grew up without her own mother. She would never have done that to her kids because she knew what it was like, Myers said. I felt that she was gone that night. She never walked away from that sight, end quote. In other words, Brenda would have never left her children and not told them where she was going. Whatever had happened to her and wherever she had gone was not of her own free will. Her family were positive. Brenda's son told Lee Hall of Fox 43, once officers realized she wasn't showing up, then they realized they had a problem because she was always very punctual and conscientious about being there for us, end quote. The problem was that by the time that law enforcement took the missing persons report, the scene of the abduction had already been greatly contaminated. It had even been contaminated by the time they first came to the tavern in response to first hearing about Brenda. Even then, by the time her co-workers knew Brenda wasn't there, they found that two vendors had already come into the bar through the unlocked door to complete their rounds and restock, like the cigarette vending machine vendor, who hadn't even known anything was amiss, just believed that whoever was supposed to be on duty had stepped out. There were empty glasses sitting on the bar with money by them, so either Brenda hadn't had a chance to fully clean the night before, or patrons had come in, walked behind the bar to make themselves drinks before leaving the money for them. And the replacement shift had come in to begin getting things ready for the evening, moving things before even knowing the tavern was a potential crime scene. At this point, so many surfaces had now been touched by others. What they did determine was that the motive for whatever happened had not been robbery. First, we assume the deposit from the night shift was still there. I say we assume because when Carl came in to inventory his bar, he didn't report that anything had been taken. Additionally, even though Brenda's keys and her purse were gone, her car was still in the parking lot. Whoever had done this hadn't come back for it. No, it seemed instead that the point of whatever had happened had solely been to take Brenda. Yet, while that seemed obvious, there was one detail that left everyone stumped. When looking around the tavern trying to locate Brenda, her black boots were discovered, neatly set, in the men's restroom. Investigator Shaw said of the boots, quote, they were stuck together as if they were placed there by someone, end quote. Had she been changing to go home and putting on more comfortable shoes when someone took her by surprise? Had she been forced to take off her boots? But if so, why? If she had taken them off of her own free will to change, why were they in the men's room? Had they been brought there by someone? Again, why? There had been no signs of blood, of violence, nor of struggle in the bar, so what had happened to her? Why hadn't she fought back? Has she been unable to? Had Brenda already cleaned up after her shift when she was taken, only having left in her checklist to grab her shoes and lock the door? Or had the perpetrator cleaned up afterward? 
And even if the intent were to take Brenda, if the money had already been on the bar, why hadn't the person taken it? In that first week of searching, law enforcement used both helicopters and search dogs to aid in looking for Brenda. They used Carl's Bad Tavern, Brenda's last known location, as the epicenter of the search and spread out from there. However, neither of those methods yielded any solid results. They were able to nail down something of a timeline in terms of when something had happened to Brenda, though. According to the Daily Collegian, reporter Jennifer Cohen wrote, quote, Police said they believe Condon disappeared at about 1.30 or 2 a.m. She was last seen inside the bar serving a customer at about 1.15 a.m., police said, end quote. But who was this patron? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ever. Suspicion quickly fell on those closest to Brenda. One of those initial suspects was Brenda's ex-husband, her children's father. However, they had a friendly relationship and talked often, and he was extremely cooperative with the investigation, coming in for questioning and taking a polygraph test. Of the focus on their father, Brenda's son Todd told Fox 43 he didn't go anywhere that night, and for him to go clear over to Carl's Bad Tavern, it just... I understand police had to do their job, but at this point, they were barking up the wrong tree, end quote. Besides, logic would say that he already had primary custody of the children, and he and Brenda were already divorced. What would he have had to gain from such a crime? Alternatively, some turned their attention to boyfriend Greg, in the years since Brenda's disappearance, Greg had substance abuse issues and was arrested in 2009 and charged with selling cocaine out of his gas station. That role in the drug world has left many wondering for how long Greg had been selling drugs out of the station. One article from August 23, 2009, written by Sarah Gannam and published in Center Daily Times, notes, quote, Condon's sister, Iris Myers, said when she heard about the arrest Friday, she wondered why it took police so long to catch Palazzari. She always believed that her sister's disappearance was linked somehow to drug dealing. I feel that she knew something that someone didn't want her to get out, Myers said, end quote. Even Nancy Jones, the woman who dated Greg after Brenda's disappearance, and was with him for several years, is curious whether someone from Greg's connections to the drug scene was involved in Brenda's disappearance. She told Fox 43, quote, I think that there's a possibility that Brenda's disappearance was from someone Greg was dealing with. I don't want to say anything to mislead anybody, but I truly feel that something happened to set this in motion, end quote. 
Additionally, Iris questioned Greg because he hadn't gone to law enforcement until Brenda had been missing for several days, despite being with her for two years and knowing how reliable she was. Iris also indicated her belief that Greg was abusive. Not only did Brenda never bring Greg around, but Iris told the Unfound podcast that Brenda would come around with black eyes, bruises, and excuses of accidents to explain them away. Iris even questioned why Greg had not gone to pick Brenda up that night. Iris was a bartender at the time, too, and in her experience, female bartenders often had husbands, boyfriends, or the bar owner walk them to their cars at the end of a late shift to ensure safety. But Brenda had been completely alone. Greg told Iris that he couldn't have picked Brenda up because he didn't have a license at the time. However, from my research, it does seem as though Greg, too, was cooperative with the investigation throughout. While he submitted to questioning from the police and even a polygraph, he's always maintained his innocence, yet also his belief that Brenda most definitely did not leave of her own volition. They were to celebrate that coming weekend both her birthday, which was Friday, March 1st, and his birthday, which was Saturday, March 2nd. Greg told reporter Jennifer Cohen, quote, she would never miss a holiday. She was definitely taken unwillingly out of there, end quote. In fact, Greg has been vocal since the beginning about his personal belief that her disappearance was somehow linked to a bar patron. He wonders if someone tried to make a move on her, she turned him down, and he abducted her as a result. Or it could be, as he indicated to Brenda's sister when they finally met after Brenda's disappearance, a case of mistaken identity, since, he said, Brenda looked just like tavern owner Carl's girlfriend. There were, he seemed to be indicating, several possibilities of what may have happened. As for Greg's involvement, reporter Sarah Gannam, in an article only four days after discussing Greg's potential involvement with Brenda's sister Iris, published an article in which another perspective is given. In this article from August 27, 2009, Gannam stated the following, quote, Palazzari said he told police everything he knew nearly 20 years ago. State Police Corporal Joe Sigage who spent time investigating the case, corroborated that. Nothing pointed to his involvement in her disappearance at the time, he said, and there's been nothing since come to light, end quote. Greg has since passed away on April 21st, 2016. Then there's Carl Easterling, the owner of Carl's Bad Tavern. The tavern itself closed less than a year after Brenda's disappearance, but Carl has never admitted that he thinks the perpetrator could have been one of the patrons at the bar. Of all of those who were asked to take a polygraph concerning Brenda's disappearance, Brenda's sister Iris told the Unfound podcast that Carl was the only one who refused, and, she said, he avoided speaking with her about Brenda as well. Further, Iris had asked one simple request, to at least see the bank deposit. That way, it would help even more to narrow down the timeline to know if she had already prepared the deposit, and it would allow Iris to see if the deposit ticket had been written 
in Brenda's handwriting, which Iris would recognize. However, Carl refused. Maybe he had some personal reason to do so, like not wanting anyone to see how much his deposit was. But the refusal, on multiple levels, has meant that some people saw it not as a means of self-protection, but instead have theorized involvement. Within a month, the leads in the investigation had already begun to slow. According to an article in the Daily Collegian from April 12, 1991, investigating officer Ron Shaw said of those being spoken to at this point in the investigation that the likelihood of their involvement with, was either, quote, slim or, quote, far-fetched. Despite little in terms of leads and what appeared by everyone who knew Brenda to have been an abduction, the investigation remained at the local level. Many wondered, even from the onset of the investigation, why the FBI did not get involved. Well, reporter Jennifer Cohen gave an explanation. Quote, Jack Shea, supervisor of the State College FBI office, said the agency could not get involved in Condon's disappearance because it did not fall within their jurisdiction. Interstate transport of a victim has to be proven or implied through a ransom note or another sign of kidnapping before a federal agency can investigate, Shea said, end quote. However, there are other theories. Do you recall that I said there were a few new faces in the bar that evening? Well, there were three distinct new faces, individuals whom no one has yet been able to identify. Despite the dissemination of composite sketches of all three since 1991, when Brenda's abduction took place. And here's the thing. We don't know if any one of these men was ultimately responsible for whatever happened to Brenda, or spoke with Brenda that night and may have information that would aid in the investigation, or even saw something that might help all of these years later. With that in mind, let's look a little more closely at them now. Sketch number one is of a Caucasian man who looked to be around 50 years old and stood at about five foot eight. The sketch shows dark hair and more of a square jawline. He was wearing dark pants, a brown plaid shirt, and a shorter dark jacket. Sketch two is of a Caucasian man who looked to be between 38 and 40 years old. The sketch makes his hair appear lighter. Even though the sketch is black and white, the shading makes it appear blonde or light brown. His face is a bit longer and oval. He also stood a bit taller as well, around six foot two inches. He wore jeans and a bright blue down jacket. Sketch number three is also of a Caucasian man who appeared the youngest of the three patrons, around 25 to 30 years old. He was around 5 foot 8 inches, looks to have light-colored eyes, and had dark hair. His hair was a bit longer in the back and looks a bit feathered in the sketch. In the sketch, this man's face either looks ruddy or dirty. He wore jeans, a white button-down shirt, a black leather jacket. It's this third sketch that has drawn the most interest, primarily because the sketch, which we'll link in the social media post about Brenda's case, looks, in my personal opinion, identical to a man named James Robert Cruz Jr. 
and Robert Cruz is a known serial killer. One of his victims, Don Birnbaum, was abducted about two years after Brenda's disappearance on March 22, 1993. The body of 17-year-old Dawn was discovered the next day, half-naked and left in a snowdrift off of the on-ramp to State Route 26, which was just off of Route 550 in Spring Township and was less than a mile from where Carlsbad Tavern used to be located. Cruz was a truck driver and passed through the area very often. Sadly, we don't have clues that can make the link to Cruz concretely. Some wonder if the black boots in the men's restroom hold some sort of a key. Some speculate whether the person who took Brenda had a shoe fetish. However, if that were the case, the shoes likely wouldn't have been left behind. Perhaps the shoes are merely a red herring and don't hold a clue about her disappearance at all. Brenda's son, Todd, told reporter Lee Hall, quote, She always had nice boots. She had a pair for every outfit, but she always wore sneakers to clean because they were far more comfortable than boots, end quote. He wonders if his mother had changed her shoes before cleaning the bar. Maybe the cleaning closet was in the men's restroom, he speculated and she was taken before she could go back and grab them. If the cleaning closet were not in the men's restroom, he admitted to Hall, well, then he can't explain why they would be there. And we're back to square one, with no clear path to take for answers. Law enforcement felt they had received new leads in Brenda's case in 2014, as they re-released the composite sketch of the last man Brenda was believed to have been speaking with. While they haven't said anything else about the lead, nor what information came in, investigator Shaw told Center Daily Times on August 10, 2014, that, quote, there's a good reason to air all the facts again. Somebody might come forward with some information, Shaw said. Somebody must know something, end quote. There are a few individuals who were close to Brenda who law enforcement would like to question again, but who have been, in their words, quote, less than cooperative, end quote. Who those individuals are, though, they've not said. In the years that have passed, there hasn't even been a modicum of closure for the family. Sister Iris spoke of her loss to reporter Pete Bozak of Center Daily Times in 2004 saying of the perpetrator and the injustice of the unknown, quote, they're still out there walking around. They're enjoying their families. She has two grandchildren she never even knew about. Whoever they are, they've enjoyed their lives for the past 15 years. They've not lived through the hell we have lived through, are still living through, end quote. Other than that, there haven't been any solid leads to be pursued, nor rumors of where Brenda may be. However, her memory is something that provides some comfort to her children. They know how much their mom loved them, even though she left this world far too soon, much like Brenda's own mother had. They, at least, were old enough to remember her face, 
recall the warmth of her hugs and to recall the adventures they had with her. Brenda's daughter, Shauna, also honored her mother in another way, naming her own daughter, Brenda. She told reporter Stephanie Steitzer in an article published February 25th, 2000, of her mother, quote, since she can't be here. It's something that's a part of me, end quote. I pray for them that one day they will get the answers they're looking for, that even though we may not ever know why someone so kind and loving was taken from this world, we may find out one day who was responsible. In the meantime, while Brenda did not have a DNA sample to file, in the early 2000s, her family provided DNA samples so mitochondrial DNA could be compared with any unidentified remains that had previously been found or that may be found in the future. At the time of her disappearance, Brenda stood five foot three and a half inches tall and weighed 110 pounds. She had reddish-brown shoulder-length hair, light blue eyes, though she often wore light green contacts, and she had a tattoo of a ring of roses on her right ankle. Anyone with information related to Brenda Condon's disappearance is asked to call the Pennsylvania State Police at the Rockview Station at 814-355-7545 or by providing a tip anonymously to the Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers at 1-800-4-PA-TIPS. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. listening to our show for more than one episode then you probably know about my love for animals what i don't often talk about is the difficulty of meeting all their nutritional needs trust me not all dog food is created equal but we're about to solve that problem for you it's called nom nom in nom nom you can actually see proteins and vegetables like beef chicken pork peas carrots kale and more and ordering it is the easiest way to take the guesswork out of feeding your dog the best Nom Nom meals are pre-portioned for your dog's exact caloric needs. Isn't it time to feel good about the food you're feeding your dog? Order Nom Nom today. Go to trynom.com slash coffee and cases and get 50% off your first order plus free shipping. And Nom Nom comes with a money back guarantee. That means if your dog doesn't love fresh, delicious meals, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom.